Bob already mentioned this, but uh, we are entering into the Advent season. And uh, typically when people think about Advent, um, you think about Christmas, and you think about Advent wreaths, and you think about Advent calendars, and uh, you know that it's somehow associated with Christmas, but maybe don't know exactly you know, what it means or how it's associated. But very quickly, the word Advent simply means arrival, right? So arrival. And uh, the idea of Advent or the idea of ar- arrival is that we look backwards at Christ's initial arrival uh, onto the earth in Bethlehem as a baby in a manger, right? And so that's the association with Christmas as we think about Christ's arrival 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. But it's not just looking back at Christ's arrival, it's looking forward to Christ's arrival when he comes again, right, in the future. And it's the hope that we have in that arrival that is a reason that it's a theme for Advent. So essentially, each of the Sundays leading up to Christmas, there's there's an Advent theme. And so those themes are this. Uh, We're going to talk about love and, and what that has to do with this idea of Advent. We're going to talk about joy. And why it is that we can have joy because of Jesus' arrival and and looking forward to his arrival. We're going to talk about peace. And we're going to talk about how we can have peace because of Christ's arrival 2,000 years ago, but how we can have peace because he's coming back again. And then today's theme is the theme of hope. And and why we can have hope, not only because Jesus came 2,000 years ago, but we can have hope knowing that he's coming back again. And so, Let me just do this without too much more. Let me take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this. Father, I thank you very much for the people that you have drawn here this morning. Father, I thank you that your word makes it clear uh, that they're not here by accident, but rather they are here because you have drawn them to yourself. You've drawn them into your presence. And so, Father, I pray that since you've invited us here and since you've drawn us here, I pray that you would meet us here in the person of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that uh, no one would be able to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God, the author of reality. Uh, Father, the one that wrote yourself into human history in order that you might save us. Father, we pray that, that we would encounter you today through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, now let me, let me begin with a question. This is a pretty serious question. Um, first of all, how many of you here... Uh, were born after 1994. Anybody can I get some hands really quickly? Anybody born after 1994? Okay, all of our college students are gone, so we don't have to deal with that today. But I, every now and then I realize that an 18-year-old wasn't born in 1994. That's a little disconcerting. Anyway, so here's the question. The question is this. What are the best movies from 1994? Yes, what are the best movies from 1994? Just, I'm just going to let this sink in for a minute, and I'll read the ones that are up there as possibilities. And I'm talking about you know, critically acclaimed, you know, cr- movie critics love these movies. Is it Forrest Gump? Great movie, came out in 1994. Uh, Is it The Shawshank Redemption? Fantastic movie, also came out in 1994. Natural Born Killers, I don't know how many of you guys saw that, but I'm sure it was critically acclaimed. Um, You know, maybe it was that. Anybody think that one of those was the best movie from 1994? Anybody? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Anyway, so let me just say this. if, if you take a vote between 30-year-old men and 45-year-old men, the following movie, I'm about to show you a clip, was actually the number one movie in 1994. Let me go to the next slide. Dumb and Dumber, all right? <laughs> now, you're probably wondering what this has to do with the concept of hope. I'm just going to play the clip and let it sink in a little bit. All right. So the reason that I use that clip is because when most of us use the word hope, 
sort of what we intend by that is we kind of are like, well, maybe, you know, there, it might happen, or so you're telling me there's a chance, right? You know, the, the, it's, it's a very indefinite outcome. There's zero confidence whatsoever. There's just sort of this uh, optimistic emotion, right? And maybe it'll work out. So you're telling me there's a chance. Uh, for example, in 1995, the year after this came out, uh, the San Diego Chargers, my favorite team, went to the Super Bowl, right? It was just fantastic. And so I remember being in St. Louis and seminary and getting together with a bunch of people and watching this game. And everybody was like, BP, you're a big Chargers fan. Do you think they're going to win? And my answer was, well, they might. You know, I I hope so. That's kind of how I was using it. And this next slide will show you the outcome of this 1995 Super Bowl. That's a picture of Steve Young, who was the quarterback for the winning team, the uh, San Francisco 49ers. It was never close, right? But again, all I could say about the possibilities of them winning was they might, maybe, I hope they win. And that was sort of my understanding of hope. You see, there, there are really two different problems with our concept of hope. And the first one is this concept that it's, it's optimism, but zero confidence, right? And so the only words that come to mind when we talk about hope are maybe and might and, you know, I hope so. So you're saying there's a chance. That's the first problem with our understanding of hope. Uh, The second problem with our understanding of hope in this particular culture is that people don't have any hope at all. In fact, they're hopeless, and they live in despair. There's a man named Joss Whedon, and uh, Joss Whedon was uh, the guy that wrote Toy Story. He's a a writer and a producer. He wrote The Avengers. He wrote Buffy the Vampire Slay. He has a long list of different movies and different TV shows that he's been involved in. And uh, in an article in Entertainment Weekly, he was interviewed, and at some point in time, somebody asked him if he had any hope in the human race. That was sort of how they phrased the question in this article, because some of his movies were somewhat hopeful. And here's what he said. He said, I think we're actually becoming stupider and more petty. This is a direct quote from the article. What's going on in this country and in many countries is beyond depressing. It's terrifying. Sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say something about how terrible things are and meaningless, and the world's headed toward destruction and war and apocalypse. And at one point or at some point, my daughter goes, hey, I'm eight. Like that, Jill. (laughs) She doesn't want to hear all that stuff. But I can't believe anybody thinks we're actually going to make it before we destroy the whole planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope, he says. I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it. It's kind of like that line from the Lord of the Rings. I give hope to men, but I keep none for myself. And so in the world that we live in, when we think about hope, either hope is sort of, you know, this sort of vague optimism, but with zero confidence, or when we think about hope, we think about something that's kind of silly. We think about something we don't have. And fundamentally, many people in America, especially people who do not believe in the existence of a God, they're hopeless. They live in despair, right? Just true. A lot of people do. The question is, what does the Bible have to say about hope? Like, what does God have to tell us about hope? And I think the answer to that question is this. It's that biblical hope is not only an optimistic anticipation, right? It's not only hopefully looking forward towards something, but it's also a confident expectation. We'll come back to this a few more times. Okay, so how does the Bible apply this understanding of hope? Well, a few different ways. Uh, First of all, the way that the Bible talks about hope, especially in this Advent season, is that Christianity or Advent or the resurrection of Christ offer the hope of restoration, right? So they offer the hope of restoration. Look at Romans 8, 19 through 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In this case, God is the one hoping here. In hope, again, this optimistic anticipation, confident expectation that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In other words, the, the term and the concept of hope here is being used to talk about this idea of the restoration of all things. And, and what we're being ta- told here by Paul isn't like, I hope that one day maybe that it might be that the world will be restored, but rather it's a confident expectation that the world will be restored. Listen to what Keller has to say about this idea of restoration. This is Tim Keller. He says this, When my wife was growing up, every summer her family spent two weeks at a small compound of cottages on the shores of Lake Erie. Now the cottages are all gone. In fact, that part of the beach in its entirety is gone. And whenever she visits that childhood vacation spot, she weeps because she knows that the beach is irretrievable. It's gone. That sense of irretrievability is like death. And the older we all get, the more we realize that certain losses are irretrievable. They're they're gone. And that sucks the joy out of our lives. But here's where Christ's resurrection offers something unique. Let me say that one more time. Listen. Here's where Christ's resurrection offers something unique. Even religions that promise a kind of spiritual future or spiritual bliss offer only a consolation for what you've lost. Does that make sense? Like only a consolation. But the resurrection of Christ even promises the restoration of what you've lost. You don't just get your body back. You get the body you always wanted but never had. You don't just get your life back. You get the life you always wanted but you never had. But Jesus Christ is walking proof that you will miss nothing, nothing that you long for. It's all coming in the future. It's going to be unimaginably wonderful. There's no religion, no philosophy, and no human being that can offer this kind of future. No other religion offers this. No philosophy offers this. No great, wonderful, well-intentioned person can offer you restoration, but the resurrection of Christ can. He goes on to say, as Christians, our hope for the future is based on the historical fact of the resurrection. So if you're not a Christian, let me ask, why wouldn't you want that? Even if you don't like different aspects of the Christian faith, why wouldn't you want this hope for restoration, not consolation, but restoration. You're not being honest with yourself if you don't want that. You know, some of you in this room, you, you love the physical world, right? It's funny, I grew up on land in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, and so much of my childhood was spent mowing three acres and, you know, taking care of this land that we have. And so um, I don't exactly love yard work like a lot of other people do, but my friends that grew up in the city, they love yard work. You know, they love mowing the grass. They love trimming the edges. They love doing all this work. And there's a sense in which doing all of that not only shows that they love the earth, but it actually shows that they want to restore it. They want to bring it back to what it's supposed to be, right? You know, many of you in this room have hopes and you have expectations. You have things, you have people, you have all sorts of things that you've lost in this life. And there's a, there's a sense of emptiness, but there's also a desire that those things or those people or that life that you wish that you always had, you want it to be restored. You want to get it. And that restoration is something that actually Advent, that Christianity and the Word of God promises us. 
We were created to care for the earth. We were created to care for one another. And in this passage, God is the one optimistically anticipating and confidently expecting that humanity will be restored to its role as caretaker of the earth, but also that we'll be restored in those relationships and into that life that we always wish that we had. We have the hope of restoration. It's an amazing, beautiful thing that Advent looks forward to. Biblical hope is not only an optimistic anticipation, but it's also a confident expectation. What else does the Bible have to tell us? What else does Advent have to tell us? The other thing that Advent says is that, that, that we're offered the hope not only of restoration, but we're offered the hope of the resurrection, right? And so Advent gives us the hope of the resurrection. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 through 14. This is one of my favorite passages to read at funerals. Uh, Paul basically says this. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, right? They have no optimistic anticipation. They have no confident expectation. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, we have this hope, this confident expectation, this, uh, this, this optimistic anticipation that those people who we love, who have died, that we will see again, that they will rise again because Jesus rose from the dead. Um, I've used this illustration before. I've told the story, but I've got a good buddy, Troy Dubel, who lives up on Lookout Mountain. Uh, he was the director of development when I was the director of admissions. And um, we had uh, children that were essentially the same age. And uh, when uh, Sam was five years old, his son um, Noah was four. And uh, to make a long story short and not to belabor the point, um, when they were on vacation, uh, Noah um, actually died of a heart defect. And he actually died in Troy's arms. It's just this amazingly um, moving, powerful, tragic experience uh, for my friend Troy. And what's interesting is I see Troy probably five, six, seven times a year. And whenever I see him, I make a point of always saying, hey, you know, have you been thinking about Noah lately? And he said, every day. I think about him every day. And one of the things that Troy says every time I ask him is he says, I just kind of want to see him again. I'm looking forward to the time that I get to see him as he was created to be. Because what Troy has is not just a, so you're saying there's a chance, maybe I might see my son again, but rather Troy has a confident expectation and, and this optimistic anticipation that he'll see his son again as he was created to be. Does that make sense? He has real hope in the resurrection. That's true for Cabell. You know, Mike Sweeney passed away now several years back. And when you talk to Cabell, she's sad, she grieves just like Troy grieves. But it's not grief without hope, because she knows that she'll see Mike again. I did my grandfather's funeral now about 10 years ago, and, uh, and since he passed away, now other family members have passed away, but I can have the hope of knowing them, of knowing that I will see them again. So we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We grieve, but we can say that uh, we will see Noah again. We will see Mike again. You'll see your grandparents again. You'll see your mom and dad, again, we can have hope, this confident expectation, this optimistic anticipation that we will see these loved ones who are in Christ again. So biblical hope is not just an optimistic anticipation, right? It's not just this sort of hopeful, maybe there might come a time anticipation, emotion, but it's also a confident expectation in the restoration, in also the resurrection. The next thing that we see is that Advent gives us this offer of hope, of access to God through Jesus, right? 
And, and let, me, let me read a passage that talks about this. Again, these are passages where hope is attached with a certain idea, a certain concept, a certain longing that we have. And here's what we read in 2 Corinthians. Verse 9 says this, If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, that's the law, this idea that the law shows us our brokenness so we can't measure up. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? That's the Spirit's application of Christ's work to us in context here. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, such an optimistic anticipation and a confident expectation, we're very, very bold. In other words, what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians is because we have a confident expectation that we have access to God, we can go to him bravely. We can go to him courageously. It's why Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. Because what Jesus was doing is he was basically saying, I invite you to come back into a relationship with my father. And what I'm doing is I'm telling you that he's like this father who when he has a wayward child, he's not angry at that child. He's not waiting to drop the hammer on that child. He's going to run to meet that child like a father who lifts up his robes and runs and throws himself around the neck of his little lost boy. We have access to his father. We can have an expectation, a confident expectation that that's what's offered to us because of the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. About nine years ago, Sam uh, was with my parents in Greenville, South Carolina, where, while Chris and I were on one of our many escapades. And um, we got a phone call from my mom, and uh, she said, Sam's pretty sick. I don't know what's going wrong. I think it might be his you know, appendix. Of course, this is a grandmother who's a little bit more cautious than most about her grandchildren. Anyway, and she said, is it okay if I take uh, him to see Ray Flanders? Now, Ray Flanders is uh, a pediatrician in our church that uh, I grew up with. I went to school with his daughter. I know his family very well. My parents have this great relationship with him. And so at 10 o'clock at night, with zero questions asked, with any doubt whatsoever, my mom called up Ray and said, hey, is it okay if I bring my grandson to see you? And of course, he said, absolutely, feel free, come on. So my mom took Sam over there, 10.30 at night. Ray Flanders saw him, no problem. He ended up being fine. But the point is this, is we have access to our Heavenly Father precisely because of the relationship that we have with Jesus. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have a, an optimistic anticipation that we have access to Him. In other words, you can actually think about coming into the presence of God and knowing that God will receive you, knowing that God longs to have you come into his presence, knowing that God desires for you to pray to him and talk to him, again, precisely not because of your record, but because of the record of his son, Jesus, and you can have a confident expectation that he'll receive you. That's good news, people. I mean, that's the good news of when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's the good news of when we pray prayers of confession and adoration. It's knowing that we have a father who longs for us to come into his presence and to know that we have hope of access to him precisely because of his son, Jesus. Who needs to hear that this morning? Probably a lot of you. A lot of you need the hope of knowing that God says, you're free to come to me. I welcome you. I want you to come to me. And don't worry if your record isn't good enough because the record of my son, Jesus, was more than enough. So biblical hope is not only an optimistic anticipation, it's that, but it's more. It's also a confident expectation. The last thing we see, or we're going to look at this morning anyway, is that Advent, this idea of the coming of Christ, 
offers us the hope of salvation, finally. Let's look at the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 through 9. Paul says this, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope, again, not maybe, not might, you're saying there's a chance, but put on hope, optimistic anticipation, confident expectation of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you can put on the helmet of salvation and you can have a confident expectation that you are safe with God, that you're okay, that nothing can happen to you apart from his will. You are, you're safe. You have been saved. Does that make sense? And he's saying that because you have this salvation, because you have this this confident expectation of being saved, you can live fearlessly, you can live bravely, you can live courageously for him. One of my favorite movies is a movie called Big Fish. I think we've got a slide of it up here. It's a movie by Tim Robbins, and in it, Ewan McGregor McGregor is the primary character. And and essentially, it's uh, the story of a father and son for all practical purposes. And it's really the son's perception of his dad's life. And it's interesting because this son basically thought, you know, my dad is always this guy who's telling, you know, kind of far-fetched stories. He's kind of always telling lies. He's always stretching the truth, you know, to get a laugh or to get people to listen or whatever. And what he finds in the story is that his father was actually as heroic and a remarkable a character as he, uh, as he portrayed himself to be. And the reason that his father lived this courageous, fearless, amazing life is because at some point in his early life, Um, he had this experience where he saw the day of his death. He knew the day that he was going to die. He knew the way that he was going to die. And because he knew that he was going to die in a certain way, and he knew when he was going to die at a certain time, he was safe. He was set free to live this courageous life, to do all these amazing things. And the reason that he had so many great stories to tell is because he knew that he was safe. He knew that he was okay until the day of his death. And so what it enabled him to do was live fearlessly. And so the question is this, for those of you who have this confident expectation that you will be saved, that you are saved, not because of your goodness or lack of badness, but rather because of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how many of you live a fearless and brave life because you know that you'll be saved? Will we fearlessly love the unlovable? Will we fearlessly speak the truth? Will we fearlessly and bravely proclaim grace and mercy in desperate need of hearing that message of a God who desires to show them that grace and to show them that mercy? We have hope. We have confident expectation in that salvation. So biblical hope is not only an optimistic anticipation, it's also a confident expectation, right? So this idea of hope changes a little bit when we look at what the Bible has to say about it. It gives us new lenses to view not only Advent, but to view this concept of hope, of optimistic anticipation, of confident expectation. And ultimately, it changes everything. And part of the reason it changes everything is because the hope that we have isn't in things that are nearby. The hope that we have isn't based upon our physical bodies. It's not based upon our minds. It's not based upon our our business or academic acumen. Rather, it's always based upon something transcendent. It's always based upon God. Many of you have seen uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy by now. Some of you have read the book in years past, 
But uh, those of you who have read it know that in the final book, The Return of the King, uh, there's this, uh, this story that's going on where, where Sam and Frodo are basically making their way through Mordor in order to try to throw this evil ring of power into Mount Doom. And, uh, and their, their journey is long, and it's arduous, and it's exhausting, and it's filled with trouble, and it's filled with dangers, and it's filled with doubt, and it's ultimately towards the end of the book, they're hopeless. And that's one of the things that Peter Jackson does a good job of capturing in the movies, is that, uh, you know, Sam and Frodo are kind of weepy, and they're kind of broken, and they've almost given up, right? Too much so in the movie, maybe. Anyway, but uh, in the book, there's this wonderful scene where they've almost given up hope. They're starving. They're utterly exhausted. And, and, and everything just looks hopeless and insurmountable. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who, of course, is the author of this book and, a, and, a, and also a, a very religious, deeply religious Christian, writes this particular scene into the book, which is fantastic. And in the scene, Frodo's asleep, and they're hiding in some bushes. He's so exhausted, he's sound asleep. But throughout the book, especially this trip through Mordor, Sam, Sam his, his guide, his peasant friend, uh, this, this noble little um, hobbit, is unable to sleep. And the reason he's unable to sleep is because he's constantly on the lookout for Gollum. He, he's constantly on the lookout for orcs. He's constantly sort of in protection mode um, of his master. And in the midst of this, uh, this dark night where he's unable to sleep, J.R.R. Tolkien writes this scene into the book. It says that Sam's laying there on his back, unable to sleep, and he looks up into the sky, this dark sky of Mordor, and he says he sees a single star in the dark Mordor sky. Here's the quote. The beauty of it, that star, smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now for a moment his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. You see, for Sam and for J.R.R. Tolkien, who lived through the horrors of World War I and World War II, Hope was never found in something imminent. It was never found in something near at hand. It was never found in their physical prowess. Hope was always and is always found in something that is transcendent, right? Hope's always found in something that's bigger than us and stronger than us and more beautiful than us. Our hope is ultimately because of a risen Christ. Because of Jesus, we have a hope in resurrection, right? Because of Jesus, we have a hope of salvation. Because of Jesus, we have a hope in the restoration of all things. Because of Jesus, we have a hope of access to our heavenly Father who invites us to come. And we can have a confident expectation. We can have an optimistic anticipation that he'll throw his arms around us and that he'll welcome us in. We can have hope. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this this biblical notion of hope that is... um, more like a, uh, a mountain than a wisp of smoke. It's something that's heavy and weighty and immovable. Father, I would ask that, um, that the hope that we have, um, again, wouldn't be in ourselves, but that our hope would be in you, um, our Heavenly Father, the author of reality. Father, our hope would be in your Son, Jesus, who arrived on earth 2,000 years ago to live 
a perfect life, um, to please you completely. Father, that our hope would be in Jesus um, dying on the cross in our place. Father, that our hope would be in his resurrection from the dead. Father, that our hope would be in knowing that Jesus, because he rose from the dead and conquered death, he can also come back, he will come back again to restore all things, to raise uh, those of us who die in you uh, from the dead. Father, I pray that our hope, that our confident expectation would be that you're a father who invites us to come to you in spite of our sin, and maybe even precisely because of our sin, Father. I pray that our hope, that our confident expectation would be in you. We pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.